Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Brittany Henderson is a specialty-trained, board-certified endocrinologist with advanced training in thyroid hormone replacement, thyroid ultrasound and biopsy, treatment of thyroid cancer, and advanced non-invasive thyroid techniques. She has years of experience treating thyroid disease and has practiced at major academic medical centers, including Wake Forest and Duke. And today, guess what? We're going to go deep on thyroid health. Brittany, welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you're an endocrinologist who specializes in thyroid disorders. So to set the stage, I'm going to share some pretty scary statistics from the American Thyroid Association. So first, more than 12% of the U.S. population will develop a thyroid condition during their lifetime. An estimated 20 million Americans have some form of thyroid disease. And then up to 60% of those with thyroid disease are unaware of their condition. That is especially scary. And for all our female listeners, women are five to eight times more likely than men to have thyroid problems. So my, my big first loaded question to you is what's driving this? What are we getting wrong when it comes to thyroid disorders? So I will say, first and foremost, that those are very staggering numbers, but probably they are underestimates, which is even more scary. And I think that the biggest thing that's driving this epidemic that we have of underlying thyroid issues is that we have, that we all live in a world that is very dirty. There are a lot of what we call endocrine disruptors that includes flame-returning chemicals and phytoestrogens and PCBs and PBDEs and all of these chemicals that look like thyroid hormone to the body and can disrupt um, the thyroid itself from producing thyroid hormones. And, and then we have disruption of our thyroid access by a lot of other things, a disruption to our female and male hormones, insulin issues, where we live in an obese society and insulin has an effect on thyroid um, function and thyroid metabolism, cortisol issues, leptin issues, all of these other hormone signaling pathways that play into thyroid disruption. And one of the biggest things that drives these thyroid disorders is something called autoimmune thyroid disease or Hashimoto's disease is another name for it. The most common reason why people develop this. And it means that the immune system, the human immune system, instead of fighting off viral infections and bacterial infections and other things, starts fighting off the the human thyroid gland is not part of itself. And because of that, the thyroid malfunctions. And so autoimmunity, if you look at that just in general, not just in thyroid disease, is just skyrocketing in our world. And so specifically women, why are women disproportionately affected by thyroid disease? That is a good question, and I don't think that there is a firm answer. I think it's multifactorial. I think number one, autoimmune disease in general is more common in females. We think that probably that is because the female immune system is taxed more with things like pregnancy and miscarriage and things where the immune system is quieted in order to tolerate the fetus for nine months and then postpartum comes back with a vengeance and you see a lot of these autoimmune diseases in that postpartum period. 
Also, women go to the doctor more often. That's kind of a silly reason, but it's true. And there are so many other hormones that are disrupted in females, like estrogen, for example. It's a huge hormone that disrupts thyroid disease. So if estrogen is too high compared to other hormones, it can really mess up the ability for thyroid to signal correctly. So all of those things combined, I think, is why it's more common in women. So the numbers are scary. And you also said that they're probably underestimated. And so (laughs) that's even scarier. And, And so what are some of the signs for people out there who may have a thyroid disorder and maybe it's being undiagnosed? So can you talk about some of those signs that maybe something is it is a little bit more serious? Yeah, so I mean, usually, like, what I tell people is, number one, think about your family history. And a lot of times in the past, people didn't talk to their family members about, oh, what kind of medical problems do you have? That's not really that exciting to talk about at the dinner table. But it is really important in thyroid disease. Thyroid disease runs in families very prevalently, especially in females. And I always tell women, if your dad has a thyroid issue, you're doomed. You're doomed. Everyone has a thyroid problem. So really, that's a huge clue. Talk to your family members. If there are thyroid issues in the family, get screened, really. And I I always tell patients, too, if you have kids in the family, females, and you know daughters and and granddaughters and nieces when they turn 10 years old start screening them for Hashimoto's disease or thyroid issues because if you can catch it early you can do things you can make lifestyle interventions you can put them on the correct vitamins or talk to them about avoiding triggers for autoimmunity um, that we're going to get into here but really getting that family history is number one And then looking for symptoms, the main symptoms, they're hard because they could be symptoms of just being stressed out or being tired in general. Everybody in the world is tired, but fatigue is is one of the biggest ones that we see. And it's not just regular fatigue. It is like mind numbing fatigue. Like you wake up in the morning and you really cannot wake up. You feel like you haven't had any rest at all. Or in the afternoon, you're having to take a nap to the point where like you're, you have to take a nap. You have to go home and take a nap or you're sleeping in your car. There's something wrong if that is happening. Other symptoms like brain fog, not being able to think clearly or weight gain or hair loss. Those are things that we see. It's hard though, because those are symptoms that you see in other conditions like iron deficiency or anemia or sleep apnea or difficulty with sleep. So I usually tell patients, if you have those symptoms and you have a family history of thyroid disease, definitely, definitely push the issue with your physician because we are not doing a good job diagnosing patients. And that is endocrinologists, that's primary care doctors, that's even integrative or functional medicine doctors, although they do a better job. And I think the latest statistic that I saw was that it takes people about seven to 10 years of symptoms before they even get diagnosed, which is crazy. It's really, really sad. Wow. Could you spend a little bit more time on Hashimoto's, given that's the most common cause of hypothyroidism? Yes. So yeah, so back in the day when we didn't have iodine added to our salt and we didn't have access to seafood and everything else, 
the most common cause in the developed world of hypothyroidism was iodine deficiency. Not getting enough iodine, that's like the biggest thing that your thyroid needs to make thyroid hormone. And so back in the 1900s, before they added the iodine to salt, people had these huge goiters and goiter meaning an enlargement of the thyroid gland. And that was the most common reason for people to develop a thyroid issue. Well, now we have enough iodine in our diet. We have too much iodine probably in our diet. And we're all getting our vaccines and washing our hands. We're all sterilized. So because of that sterilization, the iodine goiters went down, the risk for infections went down, and our immune systems really haven't been primed to kind of get used to seeing infections or get used to seeing viral issues or bacterial issues or we're not surrounded by all of this anymore. We're in more of a sterile environment. And because of that, we started to see a decline in infections and polio and hepatitis and all of these things, and an increase subsequently in autoimmune disease. Hashimoto's disease is the name for thyroid autoimmune disease. It's named after a Japanese physician that first described it. And that is one of the most common autoimmune diseases that we see. Other autoimmune diseases are things like Crohn's disease or type 1 diabetes, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. All of them are where, are in the same category where the immune system attacks that part of the human body as not part of the human body. The reason it's doing that is genetically the person is inclined to, to have that happen, which is why it runs in families. But also there's usually a trigger, some type of uh, an immune trigger, which activates the immune system to respond and sets off this autoimmune process. It could be anything, but most of the time it's things like viral infections, like EBV mono or recurrent strep infection childhood or a stressful life event or something that activates the immune system. And then there's a persistence of this autoimmune process going on where the immune system's identifying the thyroid as, hey, this is not part of me. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to stop the thyroid from working at 100%. And that is when over time, over months to years, the thyroid goes from 100% functioning down to 95, down to 90, down to 85. And you start to lose thyroid function, which is what hypothyroidism is. That's underactive thyroid. And that's when people get the symptoms that I just described of fatigue and hair loss and weight gain and all these other things. But the autoimmune process is important as well. It's a really good gauge of how active the immune system is against the thyroid gland and how much inflammation is there is in the body. And one of our main goals is not only to replace what's been lost of thyroid um, function when we give people thyroid medicine, for example, but also to help decrease the immune system response against the thyroid itself and make the person well, you know, help the immune system to recover, help the immune system to not do what it's not supposed to do by attacking a vital endocrine organ. So there are things that are out of out of our control, like a traumatic uh, life event. Unfortunately, there's not much we can control there or some ty- type of viral infection. With that said, what in terms of what we can control, how do you think about preventable or modifiable triggers of thyroid dysfunction, dis, thyroid dysfunction, and what we can control and what we should be mindful of if thyroid dysfunction runs in our family or it's just something we're concerned about? 
what can we do better? Yeah, and this is what I have. I had this conversation with um, kids that we screen, and we find that they have Hashimoto's disease. They have this autoimmune process going on in the background, but we've caught it early, and it hasn't destroyed the thyroid enough for them to have hypothyroidism yet. And so there are things that we can do, and the most important thing is to avoid illness. Really, that is. It's easy. Wash your hands and really do your best to not get sick because anytime you get sick, it activates the immune system to respond and you can get this whole autoimmune process that kind of gets worse with a happening. Also, any type of inflammation that happens in the body, so systemic inflammation for any reason, illness, for example, allergies, easy things like seasonal allergies, being in an environment where you have an exposure like mold, for example, that is really inflammatory to a, a person's body or food. We talk about food and we talk about anti-inflammatory vitamins. There are many foods that are inflammatory um, to the system and, and we might want to touch a little bit more on that, but we talk about that as well, trying to get the diet under control so that you really can decrease inflammation as much as possible. You really want to decrease any trigger to the immune system so that you can get that whole process to quiet down and preserve what's left of thyroid function. We'll definitely spend some time on food. What, what foods should we avoid? What foods should we enjoy if we're concerned about our thyroid health? And then also please touch on botanicals and so you mentioned supplements. So let's touch on those too. Okay. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is if you have Hashimoto's or if you have a hypothyroid condition and you're, you're new to the arena and you Google, what am I supposed to eat for this? You're going to be really confused because there is a lot out there talking about what to eat and what kind of diet you're supposed to be following for the thyroid. And what I will say with that is most of what's out there says gluten dairy free. Okay, so that is a good guess. And I talk about this in my book. I have a book about Hashimoto's. It's a good guess. I mean, people with autoimmune disease tend to have more gluten or dairy intolerances. That is one of the most common things that we see. But it is what it is. You're guessing when you're doing gluten and dairy free. And a lot of the time it's a good guess. But some of the time it's not. Some of the time it's something that, that is more obscure to that person's immune system. Every immune system is different. Every person is different. And personalized medicine is really like the wave of the future. So when we're talking about diet, everybody is different. Everyone's immune system identifies different things, different foods differently. But the overall theme here is to identify foods that are inflammatory to your own immune system. Gluten dairy more common in the general population if you're talking pop, like population-based statistics. But I've had people who've had issues with lettuce. I've had people who've had issues with nightshade vegetables or corn, or they've had problems with the aluminum in their deodorant. I mean, crazy things that the immune system is identifying as not part of them and causing an immune response against. A lot of times when I talk about diet, I will talk about dietary antigen testing, meaning testing for your own immune system to figure out what you have issues with. But as a rule of thumb, the most common inflammatory foods outside of gluten and dairy are things like eggs, cow's milk, and sugar. Sugar is really inflammatory to most people. 
So identifying a diet that is heavy in plants and heavy in vegetables and in lean proteins and food that is not processed, foods where you can actually identify the ingredients on the label are really important things because the less you put into the body, a body that is already activated and an immune system that's already super hyper responsive, the better. And there is also another um, diet called the autoimmune paleo diet, which a lot of patients will follow, which not only encompasses things like gluten and dairy, but things like soy and eggs and legumes and sometimes nightshade vegetables. Basically, it's a diet that puts together all of the most common inflammatory foods into one dietary restrictive um, pattern and tells patients to do that. And more than likely, those patients will have identified one or two things that are triggers for their immune system, and will see an improvement in systemic inflammation and, and in their antibodies. And then when I'm talking about actual foods that are good for thyroid, besides just being plant-based or being foods that don't have additives, things like Brazil nuts. They're rich in selenium. Selenium is an antioxidant vitamin that is good for help with what we call peripheral conversion of thyroid hormones. So it's good to help with the thyroid access. It also is an antioxidant, so it helps with oxidative stress at the level of the thyroid because of all this autoimmune stuff going on. And two to three Brazil nuts a day. Great, wonderful. The, like I said before, the, one of the most important nutrients for the thyroid hormone and to make thyroid hormone is iodine. But iodine is controversial because too little iodine causes a goiter or an enlargement of the thyroid gland and hypothyroidism. But too much iodine can actually be bad too. It can cause hypothyroidism as well. So you need to get that perfect, just right. And so really I tell people case by case basis, what to do with iodine. As a general rule of thumb, you want to get some, you want to get some. The recommended daily allowance for the country is about 150 micrograms for an adult. For a breastfeeding adult, you need more because um, you need iodine for breastfeeding, so about 220 micrograms. But if you're going up into the milligram doses, really talk to your physician or talk to your provider and make sure that is the right thing to be doing for your specific case. And I base that primarily on, you know, how much iodine are you already getting in your diet and also your antibody status. So there is one antibody in Hashimoto's disease called thyroglobulin antibody. And if that one is positive, a lot of times I try to minimize iodine um, intake because that can actually be detrimental. As far as vitamins and minerals and botanicals that can support thyroid health, some of the most important minerals or vitamins are things like selenium, iodine in moderation, zinc, really important, magnesium, iron, those kinds of things. And then other things like ashwagandha, which is a root vegetable, as long as you don't have issues with um, nightshade vegetables, because it is a nightshade. And Google, it's from India, helps with conversion of thyroid hormone. Also, immune modulators like astragalus are good for autoimmunity and for immune antibodies. And anti-inflammatories like turmeric, curcumin, fish oil, omega-3s, all of those things help with, again, systemic inflammation and decreasing um, autoimmunity. 
So you mentioned thyroid antibodies and you alluded to personalization and a blend of Western and Eastern in terms of treatment. So can you talk a little bit about which labs and blood work that that people listening should potentially ask for or try to get a, a handle on if A, they have a thyroid disorder or think they do? And then the second part of that question is, what to do next? How do you combine, and this is the big question we love to talk about here, the blend of conventional and integrative medicine, and how, how, does, how is that applicable for thyroid? And it's not just the labs, it's not just Brazil nuts. Yeah. So I, I will say right now, we're kind of in a, a position as a medical community where patients are really having to advocate for themselves as far as diagnosis. We hope to change that down the road. And what I mean by that is, you know, what I said before, it takes people seven to 10 years to actually get a diagnosis and to get on the correct treatment. That is not okay. And and I think most people can agree about that. But I think the science right now is behind and patients really do, if you're having symptoms, if you have a family history, you really need to advocate for yourself and for your own health. And one of the ways to do that is to ask for the correct lab tests from your provider. Some providers are very willing to work with patients and those are great providers. Keep those patients or people in your corner but there are some doctors that don't wanna to be told what to order and it's unfortunate, but it is the reality. So there are some labs where patients can order their own blood tests to see what's going on. One of those is, what's it called? Gosh, what is the name of it? I can get you that name and we can put it maybe in the show notes. Or sure. But when you're ordering these levels, TSH is important. So TSH stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. It is a pituitary hormone in the brain telling, you know, the us how well the thyroid axis has been doing on average. It's important, but a lot of times what people will get is just a TSH instead of the full thyroid panel. You need the full panel to actually make a diagnosis. But it's important. Free T4 is another important lab. That is about 80% of what the thyroid gland itself produces. It's inactive thyroid hormone, but it's an important part of the puzzle. Free T3, which is active thyroid hormone, is an important lab to get as well. And thyroid antibodies as a screen, especially if you have a family history. So a lot of times if you're screening early, you don't have a lot of symptoms yet, but you have a strong family history, you can find that those thyroid antibodies are positive or high, but that the thyroid levels look good. That's what you want. You want to find that early so you can work on the immune system, so you can work on your diet and work on getting inflammation to come down. You don't want to wait till it destroys thyroid function and you have to go on thyroid medicines. So that is really what we should be looking at is early screening, early diagnosis of Hashimoto's disease, and early intervention for patients. And reverse T3 is plus or minus a lot of times I will check a reverse T3 in patients who I'm treating with thyroid medicines or in patients whose T4 and T3 don't quite go together. But as an initial screen, probably a TSH, a free T4, a free T3, and thyroid antibodies. And by that I mean TPO antibodies, thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and thyroid globulin antibodies are probably the most important. So... 
I want to spend a little time about the role in terms of what the thyroid's connected to. We'll start with like, where is it, where is it located? What is it connected to? It does seem to be pigeonholed as only being about metabolism and weight, but it seems that view is too narrow. So, so let's back up and what is the connection between the thyroid and other major organs and why is it bigger than just metabolism and weight? Because I think when people first, you know, they, when you hear thyroid, it's like, oh, metabolism, weight, overactive, underactive. And, and that's the, unfortunately or fortunately, that, that I think a lot of people have that in the back of their mind when they hear thyroid. Yeah. And I think that is because weight gain or weight loss is a very tangible, like, thing that people can see with their own eyes. And a lot of the symptoms of thyroid dysfunction can be attributed to, oh, you're just depressed, you go on this antidepressant, it's fine, it's, it's not thyroid related, when in fact it can be. And so, I mean, I usually tell patients, you don't really know that you have a thyroid condition or you don't really care about the thyroid until it goes wrong, until it stops working, because it is so important to every portion of the body, every part of bodily function, that when it stops working, it can be, it is life altering to patients. I mean, quality of life goes in the toilet for people. This is really a huge deal for patients and for their lives and how they feel and everything. So it's a little gland about the size of a walnut and it is right at the base of the neck. So if you feel like your chest bone and there's like a little ridge right there in the middle, Right above that, right above that is where the thyroid sits, right on the bottom of the neck. And most of the time, you can't actually feel it unless it's enlarged. If you do feel something, definitely go get that checked out. But most of the time, you can't feel it small. It is called the butterfly um, gland because of the way it's shaped, or it's also shaped like a shield, kind of. So it has a right side, it has a left side, it has a middle um, portion, and it is a big deal. It's an endocrine organ. So an endocrine organ, just like every other endocrine organ, doesn't just interplay with things right there in the neck. It secretes hormones, and those hormones are sent by the bloodstream to every single tissue and organ in the body. There are thyroid receptors almost in every single tissue in the body. So you need that hormone for things like muscle function. So I see people all the time who can't work out anymore. They can't lift, they can't recover from their workouts. They're having joint pains, they're having muscle cramping, and that is because the thyroid hormone is not right. People have hair loss, and for females, that's a big deal. I mean, for us to lose all of our hair, that sucks. Skin issues, dry skin, blood pressure issues, it can raise your diastolic blood pressure, which is the bottom number. It can cause cholesterol problems. That's one that we really see a lot, total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. So most adults that see a primary care doctor get their blood pressure checked and their cholesterol checked. If you see a change in that and you have a family history, that may be one clue that something might be off with the thyroid um, numbers. Kidney functions important, liver functions important, reproductive function is super, super important. So we always ask about infertility. One of the biggest things that, that patients should think about if they are having infertility or if they're having recurrent miscarriage is thyroid function. Thyroid function is really important in the implantation of the embryo 
into the uterine wall. It's important in actually developing the fetus. So when we have patients on thyroid medicines, we're watching to make sure that the fetus is developing at the right percentage range. It's important in breast milk production at postpartum. Fat and body fat and body composition is an, is an important part of thyroid hormone. Temperature regulation. People will talk about cold intolerance all the time or hot all the time if they're hyperthyroid. Disruptions of the sleep cycle, GI issues, constipation, diarrhea. I mean, like pretty much everything. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's so hard, I think, to kind of say, "Oh, well, this is all from your thyroid." Because if you're not thinking about it, if you're not educated about thyroid function and what the thyroid does, why would you say, oh, well, of course my sleep and my constipation is due to my thyroid gland and my neck. You wouldn't think that. So it's hard. I think part of the hurdle to diagnosis is the fact that that physicians aren't diagnosing it early enough. They're, they're just saying, oh, it's just depression. Oh, you're fine. Just cholesterol. Which is but, like the worst thing ever. When, you, when you're when you not feeling well and you go to a doctor and they say something like that and they, they make you feel like you're crazy, it just, it's the worst thing ever. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And I think that needs to absolutely 100% change because I would tell you, 99.99999% of the time, it is because of an underlying issue. It's not all in your head, no matter what the disease is. It's not just thyroid. And so for, as patients, we really need to push that. We need to push back on that because a physician can say, oh, it's all in your head and you go home and they never think about it again. But you're living with this. You're living with these symptoms. And like I said, thyroid can be so disrupting to quality of life. So it's everything, pretty much. <laughs> so I, I want to come back to where we began the conversation in terms of what's driving this. And I'm curious, this is your specialty. You see patients all over the place. We talked, there's environmental in terms of endocrine disruptors. You know, there's lifestyle, there's stress, obviously. There's nutrition. If we're going to put, the, let's just say those are the big three buckets, are they all created equal or does one trump the other? How would how do you think about what's really contributing to this epidemic, if you will? I mean, I would say, yes, genetics is part of this, but the biggest thing that trumps everything is lifestyle. So we live in this world. We are eating packaged foods all the time because of that. We have issues with our gut microbiome, which I don't know if you want to dig into that, but that is sure. part of why people develop autoimmune disease and why they develop systemic inflammation. And not only does that potentiate or activate the immune system, because what the gut microbiome is, all the bacteria that are supposed to be in the GI tract, they're supposed to be there in a symbiotic relationship to the human organism, but because we eat a bunch of crap and because we get exposed to bacteria like H. pylori, which is a very common bacteria in stomach ulcers and acid indigestion, it disrupts that, that symbiotic relationship. We get overgrowth of bad guy bacteria. Because of that, we can have some GI issues, which not only manifest as bloating and constipation and whatever, but also activate the immune system. And 70 to 80% of our immune system, our immune cells, sit behind the wall of the GI tract. They do that because 
that is where we're first exposed to a lot of things. That is where we eat things, or that's where we are exposed to bugs in our food, for example. And so when all of this is going on in the gut microbiome, you can get an opening of tight junctions in the gut wall that is through a protein called zonulin. And when those tight junctions open and the immune system comes out into the gut lumen and says, hey, what the heck's going on out here? And starts trying to fight off these bad guy bacteria and tries to do that to, to help you as the organism that it's living in. That sets off this, this immune system activation. And if you have a genetic predisposition to this autoimmunity against the thyroid, that can make everything worse and can keep this thing going. So really, the gut microbiome, lifestyle choices, the fact that we live in a world where we're being exposed to endocrine disruptors all of the time. They're in our plastics. They're in our, our pajamas. They're in our couch covers and our mattress coverings. And we're, we have flame retardants all over the place. And I don't know if, if you know this or if the listeners know this, but you know, cats, for example have a very high incidence of hyperthyroidism. Cats, who knew? And it's because we think they are close to house desks where you get all this accumulation of these chemicals and they are licking themselves all the time. So they're being exposed to these house chemicals and it's disrupting their thyroid. Um, so they get hyperthyroidism like crazy. And, and it just goes to show you that if they're getting it, we're being exposed too. And plus we have all this other stuff going on with the gut microbiome and everything else. So I think that the real epidemic here is the fact that we live in a dirty world, we eat dirty things, and our immune system does not know what to do with them. And so, you know, it is potentiating this autoimmune process, which is killing off thyroid function, thyroid tissue, and the thyroid is so important to human health that there are so many millions of people suffering with hypothyroid symptoms. And as a medical community, we're not doing a good job in identifying those patients and treating them early. So there are a lot of people suffering. And on the extreme end, there are some people who lose their thyroid due to thyroid cancer. So I want to spend a little time there. When that is the case, is there a good prognosis? And also, how common is losing one's thyroid to thyroid cancer? So, the, yes, it is a good prognosis, number one. It is probably one of the fastest growing cancers in women, thyroid cancer. So we know that Hashimoto's and hyperthyroidism um, affect women more than men. And we know that Hashimoto's or underlying hypothyroidism is a risk factor to the de development of thyroid cancer because of all of the inflammation within the gland okay currently i think thyroid cancer is about number 13 i think there's going to be about 44,000 new cases this year alone in 2021 but of those 44,000 cases only 2,000 deaths so relative death rate is pretty low that is great wonderful and that's compared to like if you think about things like lung cancer where there's over a hundred thousand um, deaths that are forecasted for this year. So number one, it's it's has a very good prognosis typically. There are different types of thyroid cancer. Papillary thyroid cancer is the most common, and the other types maybe have less of a sunny prognosis. But we're finding a lot of this not only because we're looking at the thyroid more um, often because of this huge epidemic of hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's disease, 
But we find thyroid nodules a lot incidentally when people go, for example, to the ER after motor vehicle accident and get a CT scan of the neck to make sure that everything's okay there or an x-ray, and we see it by accident there, and then we start the whole workup. But we know other things increase the risk for thyroid cancer, most notably radiation. So all of these x-rays that we're doing for neck issues or dental issues, and we're not using things like a thyroid shield, all of the mammograms that we're doing, rightfully so to screen for cancers, but we need to make sure that we are giving people the proper thyroid shields to protect the thyroid from unnecessary radiation. But, you know, people lose their thyroids all the time for, for benign thyroid nodules or benign goiters, thyroid nodules that are found incidentally, like I just said. And a lot of times it's sold to patients like, oh, that's not a big deal. Let's just take it out. It's fine. It's growing. It's big. We don't know for certain that it's benign. But to lose an actual endocrine organ to a surgery, that's a big deal. It's not like gallbladder. I mean, gallbladder is a big deal too because you can have diarrhea afterwards, but this is like a really important part of your body. So you know, we, there are a lot of people, I think, in the U.S. and worldwide that have had thyroid surgery. Oh, I hate to say this, but a lot of them probably unnecessarily and now are suffering with the consequences of that and trying to get thyroid levels correct and get on the right medicine and actually regain their lives. Yeah, I'm curious, what are the scenarios that would require someone to have their thyroid removed, either part of it or, or all of it? And I'm curious, like, what, when is that appropriate and when is it probably not necessary, in your opinion? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, a lot of people, like, for example, will be found to have a thyroid nodule by accident or they feel something and, and get it evaluated. If the nodule is big enough, so by that I mean anything probably over about 1.5 to 2 centimeters, then it will require a biopsy. And the biopsies either come back as benign or cancerous, but sometimes they come back in the middle. And the in the middle part is the tricky part. So that means that the biopsy overall looks pretty benign, but maybe there are some cells that look a little bit funny. And thankfully, nowadays, we have things called molecular tests, which check those biopsy results for thyroid cancer gene mutations. And if it has one of those things, then we say, oh, yeah, definitely you need it out. And if it doesn't, we can keep it in, which my main goal for patients is to keep, always keep it in. Thyroid nodules are so common. I always tell people it's about the same as your age. So 40% of 40-year-olds, 50% of 50-year-olds have them, 60% of 60-year-olds, and so forth. And 95% of them are benign. They're nothing. They're just little bumps. They're super common. We're finding them by accident. They're getting biopsied. If they come back in the middle or if they start growing, then a lot of times patients are advised to get them removed. Maybe that's a good idea in some cases, but a lot of times patients are then left really miserable because they're not treated with the correct thyroid medicines afterwards. And then they wind up in this hypothyroid category. So you mentioned thyroid medicines, and there are millions of people who take a thyroid uh, hormone replacement medication daily, every day. And I'm curious, what's the best approach, in your opinion, with regards to taking medication daily? Yeah. So um, I will say depends. It depends. And that's true. 
I'm not just saying that to get out of answering it, but I will say if you've had your thyroid removed, my thought is that you should be on both T4 and T3. That means both of the inactive and the active thyroid hormone. And the reason that I say that is because when you have an intact thyroid gland, 80% of what the thyroid produces is T4, which is inactive, and 20% of what it produces is T3, which is active. And if you remove the thyroid, then you know reason says that you probably need both of what you remove, T4 and T3. And in my personal experience, patients do so much better when they're put on both of the medicines. So T4 only, nah, doesn't really cut it in that situation. And there are a lot of other caveats to this. I personally, in my endocrine practice, use all different forms. I use T4, I use combination, I use natural desiccated, I use all of it. Because if it's dosed correctly, it is fine, it is good. And some people just do better on certain formulations compared to others, just like any other prescription medicine. Um, it just has to be dosed right. And, um, and then there are a lot of other considerations like what other medicines are you taking and you have inflammation going on in the body because a lot of times if you do you do better with combination treatment as well so um it really does so in terms of the overall conversation with regards to thyroid health whether it's preventive whether it's trying to manage it where's the science going? What are you paying attention to that we should be aware of in our effort to, to right-size these numbers, if you will? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a huge patient advocacy movement to do better for thyroid care. I completely am 100% on board with that, and I think that needs to continue. And then I think that we need to, as providers, regime both conventional and integrative or functional medicine and start talking about these issues. We need to actually do research um, studies that are designed correctly. The problem is some of the research studies where they say, oh, well, T4-T3 combination therapy really didn't do anything different, so why even use it? T4 only? Well, it's because the, the research studies were not designed correctly. They, the patients were not all what we call homogeneous, they were not all the same. You're looking at a population that you don't think you're looking at and you're not dosing things correctly. So if all of that falls into place and studies are designed correctly, you're gonna see a huge shift in the school's thought on what to do with, with combination treatment. And I think the American Diet Association at their last in-person meeting did start to talk about this. They had a whole um, symposium on T4-T3 combination they are starting to talk to patients. They're starting to realize, okay, well, we need to do better than what we're doing. And and I personally am taking part in a new organization called the American um, College of Thyroidology, or ACT, where we are doing this. We're going to start bridging conventional medicine and functional medicine so that we do a better job in, in what we do for patients and in our education of providers so that they can identify these issues earlier and get patient on the correct treatment. That's amazing. And, and so in closing, any words of wisdom for anyone listening who's suffering from a thyroid disorder and trying to navigate through it? Um, yeah, absolutely. Get screened early. Um, talk to your family members about doing that. If there are girls, especially in the family, although boys can get it too. So if you have boys in the family that are 
gaining weight or having depression, anxiety. A lot of times in kids, it's depression and anxiety that comes out too. So if there are those issues, screen early. That's easy. Also, be an advocate for your care. If your doctor doesn't want to listen to your symptoms and says, oh, it's just all in your head, oh, you're just depressed, don't stop there. Go get another opinion until you have somebody listen to you and until you get on the correct treatment. There was a study that recently came out by the American Thyroid Association that said up to 40% of people with thyroid issues change doctors at least two to four times and over 15% changed more than five times. So I love second opinion, second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever you need to do to get the correct care because this is your life. You don't need to live like this. You don't need to live with these symptoms. And there are people who know what they're doing. There are people that know how to treat this correctly. And I'm excited because I think that the, the future for thyroidology is bright. We are going to be helping people earlier. We're going to be helping people and we're going to do better providers. Amen. We'll close there. Brittany, thank you so much. You're so welcome. <laughs>